Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, We are um, on a pilgrimage together uh, as a church, as a people, uh, making our way toward Easter weekend, uh, where we want to arrive uh, with our eyes fixed on all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is and all the implications to his great work of redemption on our behalf. So we are on this journey toward Easter uh, so that we can be a people who, like we just sang, have our eyes fixed on Jesus so that he and he alone becomes our vision. That it is thoughts of his love for us and his great work for us and his personhood and who we are in him that consumes our thoughts throughout the days that we spend doing our ordinary life stuff. And that's the journey we're on. When we arrive at Easter weekend, obviously, we will be celebrating the great redemptive work of Jesus, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, and all that he has done for us. But we are, in this particular pilgrimage, heading toward not just a celebration of what Jesus did for us, but what the implications of his redemptive work is as it relates to the story of history that is unfolding from the beginning of creation to where God closes out the human story as far as our world is concerned. We're heading toward a place that is found in Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation chapter 21, uh, you guys may remember last week if you were here, this is where we're headed to. And we want to remind you each week, this is where we're going because this is the pilgrimage we're on and we're heading toward. Revelation chapter 21, John is looking and it said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And behold, a loud voice said, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So that's where we're headed. A place and time in our future where God's world, God's dwelling place, God's domain, what we call heaven, and our world, our dwelling place, our domain will be fully integrated and they will be as one, where new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem come together. And what does God say? I will dwell with you all and you all will dwell with me. That's where we're headed. And we found out last week that when God created our world and his world, he created them in the beginning as an integrated reality. They were not two separate domains from one to the other that you could not pass. There was in the story of creation in Genesis chapter one, a beautiful picture of the total integration of God's dwelling place and domain and ours. And God dwelt with us and us with him. Though our focus was our world, earth, where was God? With us here on earth, not just present with us, but the Garden of Eden, his space with us, uh, not just an overlap, but an integration, the tree of life representing his life and his light for us and us with him. 
And then in Genesis chapter 3, there is a choice made by uh, us, by our ancestors, Adam and Eve, where we choose to pursue our own divinity. Not that we ever gain divinity, we gain death, but our own story and abandon the one where we live in intimacy, abiding with and integrated with God. And at that juncture in Genesis chapter three and onward, God then separates the two domains, the two worlds. His world where he dwells and our world where we dwell. His world of life and light and freedom. Our world, a domain of death and darkness. And the Garden of Eden, where the two worlds are integrated, is closed off from us and we cannot access it. This is where our story in Genesis really begins as a one that is separated from God's domain. And that's how it should have stayed. In fact, in the early part of Genesis, we find out very quickly what the implications are of a human story without God dwelling with us and present with us in this abiding and intimate space. In Genesis chapter six, just think about this for a second. We are literally just a few chapters in. The human race story has just begun. And here is what's written about us in Genesis chapter six. Our domain, our world, our planet. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, that's man's heart, was only evil continually. Well, that's quite a sentence, isn't it? Every thought and intention of mankind was evil, how often? Continuously. There wasn't even a break in our evil intent. Wow. And listen to what it says. And it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. There is this clarity we encounter in Genesis chapter 6 that demonstrates and shows so clearly the pure and, 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 and incredible destruction and horror and brokenness and mess that is the human race outside of intimacy with and abiding with God. And then God's response to this giant mess is a rescuing of us from our own self-destruction through the flood. And after that, we see the human race begin to develop again. And by Genesis chapter 11, we have a united human race. And here is their grand plan in Genesis chapter 11. We say, oh good, they're united now. They're not trying to kill each other. They're not destructive. And here's what it says. Genesis 11 verse 3. And they, mankind, said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and, uh, and for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, in God's domain, in God's house. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the faith, face of the whole earth. Mankind immediately united defies God's command to do what? Be fruitful, multiply, and go all around the earth. No, 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 no. We're going to stay in our little city, make a great name for ourselves, and build a tower to whose house? 
to God's house and we're gonna take over. We're gonna build it all the way up into the heavens and we're gonna go storming in there and show him who's boss. The human race, either trying to kill each other or united trying to kill God. And you know what God's response is to this utter disaster and this clarity of what our world is like without God being with us and us abiding with him? In Genesis chapter 12, the very next chapter, he, after the nations are separated, calls a man named Abraham and sets a covenant with him, makes a promise to him and says, Abraham, I'm gonna build through you a nation and through that nation, I'm going to bring about a way, a savior that is going to set things right so that this mess is made right. God's response to our insanity is that he steps in and he says, I am going to remedy this. Genesis chapter 12. And then uh, in Genesis chapter um, 26, uh, uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, God continues that promise with Isaac and says, the promises I made to your dad, I'm gonna fulfill them. I'm gonna build a nation through you. And he sets promises with Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 35, Jacob, Isaac's son, God reestablishes the promise again and says, what I promised your dad and his dad, I'm going to fulfill. And then... Jacob has 12 sons and those 12 sons become jealous of one of the boys, Joseph, and they try to sell him into slavery. What does this remind us of, of the human race? How messy is it still? You guys are like, very, very, very. They sold their brother into slavery so that he would die after trying to bury him in a hole and kill him. A little messy? I'd say so. You know what God does? Without human destruction, he sets it up so Joseph ends up in Egypt, becomes a ruler in Egypt, so that when the famine hits, the other 11 boys in their family are saved. God begins to paint a story. Our mess is never going to be messy enough for God not to redeem. Our mess is never going to thwart the plans of God. Our mess, as horrid as it is, every thought and intent, evil, continuously, will not stop God from rescuing us. And so he sets up the story that begins and then the story unfolds. This people emerges just as God had promised, the nation of Israel in 12 tribes from the 12 brothers. That nation grows over a number of hundred years, hundreds of years, and then Egypt takes them slavery uh, as slaves. And so you start with a people of God that are enslaved. Do you see the story unfolding? God is not without intent in telling his story of history as it relates to his love and care and rescue of us. And this enslaved nation, he comes in with Moses, a savior, and he sets them free from their slavery and calls them to follow him. And that people is set free. And as he sets them free, he sets them free by atoning or by covering or by solving the problem of their brokenness. And atonement sets them free and shows up with his presence and says, follow me. And I'm going to take you to a place called the promised land where you will experience the freedom of what it's like to be with me. So there it is. An enslaved people set free by God through an atonement and a promise to a home that is going to be with God and incredibly awesome. 
And you know what the people do with that whole set of promises? They follow God until they're in their first small, teeny, tiny crisis in the desert. They begin to whine and complain. They turn on God and they want to do it their way. Yay! And God's response to that is extraordinary. As we watch this unfolding human story constantly unravel, oppose, and and stand in opposition to God's promises, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's rescue, God comes along and he says, you all are going to spend some time wandering around in a hard place, but I am going to be with you. And as a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, God is present with his people and he leads them through the desert, showing them the way. But then something happens that becomes more than just God being present with us. Pay attention now. Because remember, the story we are unfolding and the story we are following in scripture, the story that gets us to Revelation 21 is this story, that God started creation with his dwelling place, his home, his domain being integrated with our dwelling place, our home and our domain. They were together, they were one, even though they were two homes. You with me? Where did God dwell? With us and where did we dwell? With God. Then that was broken in Genesis. And the story of the Bible is God's reintegration of those two worlds. So that in Revelation 21, they are fully reintegrated. But what God does is he demonstrates throughout a story in scripture where he takes his world and he overlaps it with our world in beautiful spaces that progress over time to show us that he has always, will always, and in the future will absolutely dwell with us and us with him. He is not just a God who dwells in another place and shows up here in some regularity. He is not just a God that dwells somewhere else and he's present with us as well. Like he's left his home and he's here. He is a God that will show us constantly throughout scripture that he is making his home with us. Home is coming here. He is not a God that says, good luck trying to find me with a tower. He's a God that says, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. So it starts in this early story in the book of Exodus. God, after he gives Moses the 10 commandments and the law, and God is present with his people, leading them by cloud and by fire. God then gives instruction uh, and listen to this. This is in Exodus Uh, chapter uh, 26. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 26 or just listen, we're gonna go fast. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, think about what happens now. In Exodus chapter 23, God confirms with his people the promise of a promised land. Then in Exodus chapter 24, God confirms with his people the promised covenant he made with Abraham of a savior that will make a way to this promised land. You with me so far? God confirms his promise, confirms his promise. And after that, chapter 25, verse eight, he says this, and let them, that's the people, make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now look what God is doing. Is God already present with his people? Yes, cloud and fire, right? He's been with them. This is more than simply being with them. This is God beginning to tell this story. I created your world and mine to be integrated Your sin has shattered that integration. They are separated. Now I'm going to begin to overlap them. So I need you to build a sanctuary, a tabernacle, and I'm going to come live in it with you. It's not about his presence. Primarily, it's about his dwelling. There's a big difference. He's not leaving to come hang out with us. He's coming to live with us. And so he says to them, I need you to build a tabernacle. The word tabernacle literally translated is tent of meeting, a meeting place that is a tent. That's a tabernacle. And God says, I want you to build a tent where we will meet. But what am I going to do with this tent? Is it a place I'm going to come visit? No, it's a place that I'm going to dwell in, live in. With who? With you all. I'm going to come live with you all. And so he says, establish this tabernacle. Then the people build the tabernacle and they create it. And listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle is made. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Look at what God does. The cloud representing his presence doesn't just like hang out. It goes to the tent that they built according to the furnishings and structure he told them. And what does the cloud do? It goes and it moves in. It moves in. This is a really big deal because we are now a planet of death and darkness and a people of death and darkness of sin. And God does not just visit us He makes his home with us. Have you ever been in one of those um, uh, relational fights that you have with a good friend or a spouse and, and they are the fool, right? They do the stupid stuff. They deeply hurt you. You are 100% in the right, 100% justified. I'm just being hypothetical here. Let's actually imagine a situation that that's actually true. You are actually fully justified. They're actually the only fool in the argument and they've actually totally blown it and they've totally hurt you. And you do one of those things where you walk away and you're like, when you are ready to come and say sorry, then I will be happy to jump in and have a chat. Right? That's just, but what God is doing here is despite the fact that we are the fool in this relationship and we have done opposing and terrible things for how long? A long time. How many times? Over and over again. How consistently? All the time. And God isn't saying, when you are ready to come and have a convo with me about what's going on, I'll be right here. He's moving on in. He's like, build me, build me a house. And I'm going to come live in it with you. And then God, in instructing the people to build this house in which he will dwell, not that God's presence is only in the house. Where is God's presence? 
everywhere, but what a beautiful picture that God wants us to know from the beginning that he's going to come live with us, bring home to us, homecoming here, that he's going to tangibly set up things uh, throughout history that says, here's my house. Here's my house. I'm going to come live with you in it. This house, he says to the people, here's what I need you to do. I need this house to have three areas in it, three distinct spaces. I need it to have a courtyard. I need it to have a place that is called the, the holy presence, sort of a, a, a middle space that, that's, that's, you need to think of as the holy place. So when you're in the courtyard, you're kind of not in the house yet, right? You're sort of coming in and then there's a space as you get closer to the inside of the house where you're now talking about a holy place. And the word holy is gonna be a really big deal because it displays and speaks to the complication of a relationship between a people that have sin and a God that is holy, so holy that when sin encounters God, what happens to sin? It burns up and dies. And since we by nature are sin, what happens to us if we enter the presence of God? It's about the same as sin. Burn up and die. Absolutely eliminated. So complicated, isn't it? I'm gonna come live with you, but if you come to me, you die. And so he sets up this beautiful space that he says, there's an, there's an outer courtyard that you come into. Then there's a space of holy place. There needs to be some real clarity and caution there. And then there's a third space called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a place that God said, in order to enter that space where my presence is most tangibly residing, is God's presence everywhere? Yes, but he's re representing himself living in this house. When you come in that space, you need to come in that space with the sin taken care of. And that's gonna take a lot of work. So one time a year, one person in very particular circumstances. And he sets that up. Then he sets up some furniture in this place. And look what he's doing with the furniture. He sets up three primary things. He says, build an ark, the ark of the covenant, and the ark is fascinating because it represents God's merciful and righteous rule over all of creation. The ark is set up the same size and dimensions as a footstool. And inside the ark are the tablets that he wrote the law on. What does God say all of creation is? His footstool. Footstool is the answer. His Footstool, what is someone's footstool? It's where they put their feet up and it represents their rule over or their, or their power over something. We, all of creation, are God's footstool. God is the ruler over what? All of creation. And so the ark represents his righteous and powerful and incredible and sovereign rule over all of creation. And inside the ark are the tablets of righteousness saying that God is not only the ruler over all creation, but he rules with righteousness and justice. Do we want a just ruler? A righteous ruler with zero evil intent, zero evil period, zero sin. Yes, we do. And we have that God. The trouble is we're not righteous. So that's problematic. We'll get to that later. But God is, and he is the ruler. Then he sets up a second piece of furniture, uh, which is the bread of presence. It's in the tabernacle. And the bread of presence represented, is represented by six loaves of bread in two rows. So how many loaves does that make? 
12. How many tribes are there in Israel? 12. What do the 12 loaves of bread represent? God's provision for how much of the people of Israel? All of them. Is God's provision enough? So God is the righteous ruler uh, on the footstool with the righteousness inside of it to represent our security in who he is and that he is sovereign. He is the provider of all of our needs. And when we come to him, we will always have enough. And then not only is the bread a, 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 a picture of his provision, but it's a picture of his invitation to fellowship. When you invite someone to come to your house and you put out a meal for them, what are you saying? Come hang out, come visit, come spend time, come fellowship. You're not knocking on the door. Hi, how are you? What are you doing here? So I'd pop by, not right now. But when you're like, hey, there's a meal out, come on in. You're saying, I want you to come and spend time with me and I am going to provide for you. And then God put a piece of furniture in there, uh, the lampstand. And the lampstand, uh, the menorah, is a lampstand with seven candles and it represents the tree of life which is the representation of God's presence and power in the Garden of Eden that exudes life. And when you eat of the tree of life, when you eat of God, when you are with God, intimate with him, abiding with him, belonging to him, then you have what kind of life? Eternal life, always life, because God is always life. And so the, the candle represents the life that is God and the light that is God. So when you come into God's house, what's it like to be in God's house? It's light and life. It's provision and fellowship. It is ruling righteousness and mercy. Do you see how the tabernacle was the beginning of God displaying to us that when his world, his domain, his dwelling is integrated with ours, what will our experience be? Life, light, freedom, provision, enough, love, mercy, righteousness, wonder, the lack of sin, death, pain, horror, hostility, all of that. And he sets it up and where does he put it? His first little house? Right in our camp. And he says, my dwelling place is with you. And you are with me. He comes to us. Now, the reality is, as he sets this up, that complication I talked about, that he might come and dwell with us. He might set up his house in our camp, but because of who he is and because of who we are, it's sort of like my house is right here with you. I'm dwelling with you. I'm also leading you. I am the cloud that leads you. Where did the house go? The tabernacle go when the people moved? With them. So where did God dwell constantly? With them. And who led them as they went places? He did by cloud of fire. So watch this. How cool is this? God is both leading them places. We follow God, but he's also following them. He dwells wherever they dwell. So you can say this. I follow God and God goes wherever I go. How fun is that? I follow God and yet God follows me insofar as he is always where I go. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Hey, I'm sending you out into the world, but I will be with you where? Everywhere. How often? Always. You're going to follow me by my spirit, and yet I'm going to be with you by my spirit. 
And so the tabernacle is the first beautiful picture of God saying, before I call you anywhere that's home, I'm bringing home to you. I'm coming for you. You don't have to come for me. I'm coming for you. And I'm gonna dwell with you. And then when we run into the complications of what it now means that you can come into my house and into my presence and then burn up and die, we're gonna come up with solutions so that you don't come in, burn up and die. And that is what God is gonna begin to reflect as he opens the invitation to come into his house, into his presence. Now that he dwells in our camp and he invites us into the house, he's gonna begin a process to demonstrate what atonement will look like. And that's where next week we walk into the temple. And the temple becomes the picture of how God's invitation into the house is allowed for by his great redemptive and merciful work. So where does that leave us as we go on our pilgrimage and head our way? Uh, here we are at a tabernacle a long time ago in the camp of the people of God where God dwells. What a thing it is for us to be reminded sitting here that God is no longer dwelling inside of a tent that follows us around, is he? He's no longer dwelling in a building that we have to come to called a church like Mosaic Church, is he? Where does he dwell now? In us, his people. We're gonna get to that in a couple of weeks. We don't wanna get ahead of the game, but it is important that we are reminded of our context because our context is not context number one, the little tabernacle in the camp that you can't even really go into without dying. Our context is one where the work of Jesus has set us free so that we have his presence where? In us and we have access to his presence when and how? All the time. Oh my goodness. And so think about what the tabernacle does. It reminds us that when he is present with us and we are present with him, here's what life is like. What kind of a ruler do we have? a just and righteous ruler who is full of mercy. When God tells you or I what we ought to do, how we should live, how we should think, where we should head, how life should play out, you and I would be wise to listen to him. Why? Because he started in the very beginning saying, I am what kind of a ruler? A good and just and right ruler. If you have an idea and I have an idea, and yours is different than mine, how has that gone for the human race? Poorly, terribly, not words yet. The words we ought to be using are inappropriate in this room. You understand what I'm saying? Very, very badly. And so what he's saying is, you can keep doing that, but we have an entire story that tells that story. I am a what kind of ruler? Just and righteous, trust me. I'm not only just and righteous, but I'm sovereign and I'm powerful. What is my footstool? Everything. Everything's my footstool. Who stands in opposition to me? No one. What enemy do you have or I have that I'm a little afraid of? Zero. We have a God who is both just and righteous and merciful and powerful and sovereign. Trust in him. We have a God who invites us into fellowship and gives us the provision we need in order to fellowship with him. You and I are invited to fellowship with God. How often? All the time, as much as we want. 
We don't have to come to a building, a tent. We don't have to cover ourselves in all sorts of blood. We don't have to kill animals. We don't have to do anything. We just have to come in the middle of our day-to-day stuff all the time and fix our eyes and set our minds on Jesus and know that he is available and he is with us and we are with him. And the more we consciously start shaping our life to be one that is aware of his constant presence and invitation into fellowship and his constant provision, even when the circumstances, relational realities, and resource challenges try to tell us otherwise, the more we will live in that space that is God's house, a space of contentment and joy, because God's house is enough. It's always enough. And God's house is right here with us. And the reminder through the lampstands that living with God having God live with us as he does now, even though it's not the full expression we get in Revelation 21, is a life of light, a life of freedom, and a life full of life. So you and I can choose each day to ignore that we are with him and he is with us and just do life in the distractions and realities. You're welcome. Go for it. And you will miss out on the light and life that is yours to taste and live in every second of every day, as will I. And we do, that's okay. We will miss out on the fellowship and feel like we don't have enough. And when we make decisions that oppose God, it's not gonna go well. And when all that happens, where is God going to be? What has he shown us from Genesis to Revelation? He's gonna be with us, dwelling with us. He's not gonna move out. He's not going to go, oh, I invited you and there was bread and it was light and life and I had like the righteous way and you just ignored it all. So I'm moving on out. I'm moving back to to heaven. You all are on your, he's never going to do that because the entire story of history is actually God moving in, not God moving out. And when he moves in, the second he moves in, he invites us to the table. And then since we can't come, he makes a way. And his way is him. And this is the journey toward Easter. We have a God who came home here and brought home to us. Home came, home is coming. We have a God who made a way for us to come into that home. And we have a God who made a way for us to live with him forever. And Easter waits for us to culminate there in worship and awe of this God and the story he's told throughout history of homecoming, homecoming here, homecoming soon, home with us now. What a God we serve. Let's pray. God, the tabernacle, thank you. Thank you for the tabernacle. You could have so easily just showed up in a cloud and a pillar of fire, your presence with us leading the people of Israel and that would have been more than enough. We would have known you're with us. Your promises would have held true and we would have sensed your presence. But you, God, from the very beginning of human history, you set it up so that your dwelling place would be with us and our dwelling place with you. And we, God, chose otherwise and shattered that reality with two separate spaces, but you have been overlapping them ever since, creating little pictures where your world overlaps with ours, all moving toward a place 
where the overlap will cease and full integration will once again be our story and yours. John, when he looked up, God, thank you for having him write it down, that he saw a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new Eden come together and you declaring it being declared that your dwelling place is with us and ours with you. And in this new dwelling place, no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more darkness, no more tears, no more nothing that is evil, nothing that is broken, nothing that is terrible, only light, only life, only freedom. And we are so grateful that we live in a time in history where we don't only know of the tabernacle that you set up as a dwelling place in our camp, but we know of you coming, becoming flesh and blood, dwelling with us literally on this planet, living, dying, and rising from the dead to set it up, to make a way so that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that you, Jesus, are King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior, that we will be saved and have life eternal so that when the new heaven and new earth reintegrates, we will be your people and you our God, and we will worship you as you do all things for your glory and our good. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. We're in awe of you. Show us the way to follow you well as you lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.